You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany Sermon Series, Come Home, Full Life in a Whole Church. In this series, we see that those who come to Christ find new life in a new family. We'll learn why the church exists, what it does, and how each of us is a valuable part. Some Pharisees and teachers of religious law now arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. They asked him, Why do your disciples disobey our age-old tradition? For they ignore our tradition of ceremonial hand-washing before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you, by your traditions, violate the direct commandments of God? For instance, God says, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. But you say it is all right for people to say to their parents, Sorry, I can't help you, for I have vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. In this way, you say they don't need to honor their parents, and so you cancel the word of God for the sake of your own tradition. You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Well, wherever you are, you may be seated. My name is Jonah. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn, and I'm very happy to look you in the eyes through your screen and say, peace be with you. Uh, It might be a good time. Uh, I'm thankful for Facebook Live uh, to just type a quick comment, peace be with you, and let's flood each other's lives with that reminder that we have the peace of Christ. Uh, It's been a wild week. It's been an unprecedented week in the history of our church. It's the first time we've ever postponed Sunday services. Uh, So standing here, preaching to, oh, let me do a quick count, six, seven of my favorite people in the world, singing, praying. Uh, the events of the last few days and the last few weeks, it's, it all feels a bit surreal. Um, in, in our part of the world, particularly over the last several decades, uh, it's difficult to imagine what church means apart from a Sunday gathering. I'm already filled with excitement for the day we will gather in this room again, but there are so many unknowns between this morning and whenever that day will come. The church is not less than a Sunday gathering, but surely it's more than that too. Surely it's more than a meeting that takes place at a certain time once a week. It's got me thinking about uh, a house that my wife and I saw a couple years ago. Um, We've been kind of slowly thinking about moving and trying to decide if we should buy this one house. It was the right size, it was the right price, it was in the right location, and online we were working our Zillow and it looked gorgeous. It looked amazing. We were showing each other pictures and bed saying, this is the one. And so we scheduled a showing and for the first five minutes, it was the one. Uh, For the first five minutes, it was gorgeous, and it was perfect. And then I can remember standing in, it was the kind of house that didn't have an entryway, it had a foyer. You know, that's where it's like the big grand opening. And we're standing in there, and we kind of 
cocked our heads sideways, and we realized that the floor in the, the foyer was crooked. And then we looked a little bit more closely and realized on the other side of the house, the floor was crooked the other way. And, and then that made us look at, it had cased openings, which I guess are big fancy doorways, and the cased openings were crooked. And as we started looking more closely, the whole house was kind of pointed in on itself. We found a hallway that had drywall missing from one of the walls, and, and the studs were all rotted out from termite and water damage. And then we went downstairs in the basement, and we looked at the floor joists, and they were all rotted out. And we realized that this beautiful house, it was collapsing in slow motion, you know, a, a couple of centimeters every month or two. And, and what had happened is flippers had come in, and they'd made a dangerous house look pretty. They had made a house that should probably be torn down on the surface look impressive. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting a pretty house. Um, it's not sinful to want a beautiful home, I don't think. But if your house is beautiful and dangerous, that's a recipe for disaster. If you want something that looks good but isn't safe, that's a recipe for disaster. We want to live in homes where the walls and the bones are safe and beautiful. We want homes that look great, but are also healthy and safe. The people of God are a family that the scriptures call the church. We are a home built on people and practices. Times like this can reveal to us who we really are. And so over these, these next coming weeks, we... We are going to look at some poignant stories beginning in Matthew chapter 15, stories from the life of Jesus that help us to see who we could be. The earthly home of every Christian is the local church. So what makes a church beautiful and safe? Who are we, especially if we're not gathering in person on a Sunday? Or to put it real simply, what makes a church a church? In some ways, these stories are us taking a peek under the floorboards. We're going down into the basement. We're peeling back the drywall to look at what's on the inside of a church. Um, this morning, we're, you could think of it like we're looking at the plumbing. And nobody looks at the plumbing until there's a problem, right? The plumbing is incredibly important, but it's often overlooked. And this is a story about some of the crucial plumbing of a house. And it shouldn't surprise us that involves a confrontation with people who were supposedly experts. You could think of them kind of like home flippers. They were great at making the home look beautiful. And we learn who these people are. You can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15 if you'd like. Uh, in verse 1, it says, Some Pharisees and teachers of religious law now arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. This is not a friendly visit. Uh, imagine finding out at work that people from the home office in New York were flying in because they wanted to see you. They're not going across the country just for a nice, friendly meeting. These are the religious professionals from Jerusalem. These are the religious elite. And whenever you see a group of religious people collectively asking Jesus a question, they're trying to trap him. And so listen to what they say in, in verse 2. Why do your disciples disobey our age-old tradition? For they ignore our tradition of ceremonial hand-washing before they eat. So first notice that they're coming to Jesus through his disciples. They're not directly confronting him. And they're saying, why have you guys given up this tradition? Right now, the tradition of ceremonial hand-washing may sound like a pretty good idea, 
right? Like, at the surface level, it doesn't sound like a bad idea to say, wash your hands before you eat. And this is a long-standing tradition that now Jesus' disciples apparently aren't practicing the same way that the religious people had expected them to. And so real subtly, what we have to notice has happened here is that a tradition had become a law. So a family tradition had become a litmus test of morality. And you may think the example is silly over hand-washing, but you have to recognize all of us do this too, every one of us. Um, At Thanksgiving last year, there was a brief window of time where it looked like our family wasn't going to have Thanksgiving, and I, or have turkey rather, and I almost lost my mind. Who, how could you, how could you have Thanksgiving without turkey? And where's the law that says you have to have turkey? It's a small example that this tradition, I'd gotten used to having turkey, this is what you do, and it felt like this grand moral violation that we might not have turkey on the menu that year. Maybe you experienced this when you got married, and here's one I've seen, you know, houses burnt down over, metaphorically speaking, is your wife grew up in a home with colored lights, and you grew up in a home with white lights. So which lights get put on the tree? It's not just a question of, you know, lighting, as it is deeply held family traditions that had become morality. Uh, If you are 50 and over watching right now, or maybe you need to go call your parents and talk about this, uh, you may remember what they called the clothes that you wore going to church, and they were called your Sunday best. For probably a hundred years, you had to put on Sunday best to go to church. You had to look your best for God. You had to dress up, and it's, it's not bad to want to wear nice clothes to church or have your outward appearance kind of reflect your inner desire of purity and preparedness to come before the Lord. It's not wrong to want to wear nice clothes to church, but then what happened when the kids started wearing jeans to church? You'd hear things like, I don't know how you can call yourself a Christian and wear jeans. Wearing a suit or fancy clothes or a long skirt or whatever the the code of the day was became the litmus test of true spirituality and true religion. You wore jeans to church? How dare you? There are so many examples of this. Uh, Alcohol is one that's a little bit more sensitive. There's incredible dangers in alcohol. It's ruined people's lives. And, And yet, it's also a gift for some, but it's become elevated beyond this, what is our family tradition with this, or what are best practices, to now this litmus test of true spirituality. It's, it's become law. Alcohol isn't a great example, and there's lots more petty ones. Dancing, styles of music. It went from you, you can only have choir, to you can't have any drums, to you can't have any guitars, to everybody has their own different way of doing this. And, and my point is that every one of us personally, every church, faces the temptation of elevating a tradition to a law. And you know, maybe you're, you're sitting on a couch right now with your kids. Realize, in 20 years, those are the kids that will be grown up and they will be leading our church forward. And what's going to happen when those kids come and they want to do something like, like change the logo or cancel trunk or treat or change the color of the carpet? It's not a joke that churches have split over the color of the carpet. Are are we going to be a people that get angry with them and say, but it's always been done this way? This is what's going on with the religious people. It's always been done this way. How dare you? In verse 3, Jesus responds to them by saying, why do you, by your traditions, violate the direct commandments of God? 
He, give, he gives an example uh, to show them how they're violating the command to honor their mother and, the fa- their, mother and their father. That's in the top 10 list, right? That's, that's one of the 10 commandments, to honor your mother and your father. Jesus gives us a little more clarity on the indictment in verse 5. He says, You say it's all right for people to say to their parents, Sorry, I can't help you, for I have vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. We need to recognize how holy this sounds. Similar to how holy ceremonial hand-washing sounds. Doesn't that sound like something somebody religious would say? I would help you, but I've decided to give this to God instead. It sounds so spiritual, ritual, ceremonial hand-washing, so holy, so important. What a wonderful tradition. And in essence, Jesus is saying, you who say grace before meals do not show grace at home. You who say the right things do not live the right things. The indictment is in a nutshell is in verse 6. You cancel the word of God for the sake of your own tradition. The problem Jesus is spelling out here is people who have elevated tradition to the place of law. And when we do that, we often hurt people. And, and what's even worse is we hurt them in the name of God. God's commands are about life and freedom. When tradition becomes law, not only is the purpose of the tradition often lost, but it also often ends up doing far more harm than good. Jesus pushes the indictment further by quoting from Isaiah chapter 29, and he quotes it in Matthew 15 verses 8 through 9. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. Underneath all of the religious language here are hearts that are far from God. And Jesus is looking at all of this behavior that sounds holy and looks spiritual, and he says, your worship is a joke. They treat tradition as if it were commands from God. It's, again, it's even worse than that, though. They're using godly-looking things to do the things that God detests. They are twisting God's word to justify doing things that God hates, namely hurting and neglecting people. How does this in any way help us answer the question, what is the church, though? Well, if you try to step back and say, what is this story about? It's showing us something about what makes the family of God the true family of God. It's showing us that the true family of God is built on the word of God. That's to say the first foundation of the church. What makes a church a church? It's the authority of the scriptures. This is, this is the great Protestant doctrine of sola scriptura. That is, our authority comes from the word of God alone, and specifically Jesus' interpretation of the word of God. So if the church is a house, it is first a word-built house. When you get underneath the floor and inside the walls, you'll see the word of God. So we must be a people, a true church is, they are not people that say, this is the way we've always done it, so much as they are a people that say, this is what the word says. And this doesn't mean we throw out all traditions. This doesn't mean just because it's been done before, we shouldn't do it. Traditions are worth paying attention to. We're wise 
to consider our history, to consider what people before us chose to do, to consider, like in this circumstances, how have churches responded to events like the last week throughout history? We're wise to pay attention to those things, but our commitment to the Scripture must always overrule our, our commitment to tradition. Whenever, whenever a person or an entire church elevates tradition over Scripture, the house, it becomes like the house my wife and I looked at that starts collapsing in slow motion. It may not happen overnight. There may be parts of it that are still in good shape or look good. But when we, when we elevate tradition over Scripture, that house has begun a slow inward collapse. It's an important reminder for us, particularly now that we are facing, frankly, un- uncharted territory in many ways. As individuals, as a church, as a city, we will likely have to confront some of our traditions in the days and the weeks to come. There may be something small, like moving large gatherings to the internet for a while, like we are now. When we return, it may mean something like taking communion from single-service cups, which is different than what our tradition is. Sports tournaments, parades, schools and universities, so many of our cultural traditions have been canceled or postponed. It's times like these where we can experience the blessing and the opportunity of being a word-built house, though, instead of a tradition-built house. For some, these coming weeks will be a time for you to learn what it means to be rooted in the Word of God. If you're new to the faith, and maybe you feel like you're too busy to study the Bible or to learn to read it for yourself, many of us will have a lot more time on our hands in the coming days, in the coming weeks. As a church, we have incredible resources, unprecedented resources in the history of the church to help you learn to read the Bible and find comfort in the many rich promises the Scriptures have for us. Right now, media is an unbelievable tool, and it's free to you. It's free to you. It's thousands of Bible studies from men and women who are gifted teachers. If there's anything you want to know about the Bible, you can go on Right Now Media and you can watch it from some of the world's best teachers. Our second step class, which we just started here at the church, is focused on the core doctrines of the scriptures and then the ancient creeds that gave birth to them. Uh, How do we pray the scriptures? How do we pray for the pressing needs? And what does the Bible teach about some of the most important issues facing us? We're moving that entirely online this week. Uh, You don't have to miss a single beat. You can sign up for that and you can enjoy and learn the scriptures. The point is, we we have this opportunity to become a people, some of us for the first time, who prioritize our time in the scriptures because they help us know and experience the presence of Christ in our lives. We don't want to become a people who, like the Pharisees, searched the scriptures diligently, thinking that in them we would find life. We don't come to the Bible for the sake of coming to the Bible. Uh, Jesus' indictment to them in that passage says, you search the scriptures diligently, thinking that in them they find life, but it's they that attest to me. Falling in love with the Bible and spending time there is one of the most direct routes to experiencing Jesus, to experiencing the presence of Jesus and learning what he's like and who he is. We must be a people who prioritize our time in the scriptures because they help us know and experience the presence of Christ in our lives. A solid foundation 
that brings clarity in times of chaos. And, and that's where I want to close this morning, that idea of clarity in times of chaos that we can find in the scriptures. So if you're watching this, you're on the internet, and you know on the internet there's almost endless speculation. And uh, I will be honest, there are many questions all of us are facing right now and that we'll have to face in the weeks to come where the honest answer is simply, I don't know. And the honest answer more broadly is, we don't know. There There are things we may not be able to prepare for or anticipate. We just don't know. But for the Christian above all, that does not have to bother us. That does not have to spiral us into anxiety. We know that this world is in God's hands, and we know our eternal home is waiting for us. We know that the most repeated invitation of the Bible is, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. We looked at this last week when the disciples are fighting a storm, and they think Jesus is coming as a ghost, and he looks at them and he says, take courage. Don't be afraid. I am. We do not have to be afraid because the I am is with us. God is with us. Jesus doesn't calm storms from the shore. He calms them from inside the boat. Jesus doesn't stay far away saying, I hope you guys work it out. He comes near and he says, I am with you. Jesus has provided for us. Jesus is leading us. There's a dose of clarity for us. Do not be afraid. We don't have to be afraid. How does that help right now, though? Maybe that brings a sense of future clarity. Our eternal home is secure. One day we will be with Jesus. How does that help us right now? I believe with my whole heart that there is an opportunity for us here at Sojourn New Albany to learn a lesson that's been difficult for us over the years. See, if you come to know the scriptures, if you spend time there, you'll see that God is asking us to help make this a world where we take care of other people the way we would want them to take care of us. And he presses it even a little bit further and says, take care of other people the way you take care of yourself. Love others as you love yourself. He wants you to love your neighbor. He wants you to bear your burdens. He wants you to work to make life down here look like it is in heaven. To look at our future destiny in the kingdom of God and to work to make our life here reflect that. He wants society to be well-ordered in particular for the oppressed, the vulnerable, the marginalized, the overlooked to be taken care of. You will see this repeated over and over and over in the scriptures. The Bible calls that idea simply justice, the proper ordering of society, the caring for the marginalized, the caring for the oppressed and the overlooked. So, Micah 6.8, we saw this earlier. He's showed you, oh man, what is good. 
What does the Lord require of you? What a huge question. God, what do you want from me? What's your will for my life? What should I do in this time? Act justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. What does walking humbly with God look like? It means to love justice and mercy. Or to put it more simply, take care of people. Take care of each other, especially those who are in positions where they can't take care of themselves. And the warnings, if we do not, are so severe. In the book of James, Jesus' brother tells us, there will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you've been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. There is such a beautiful opportunity for us as a church to learn how to show mercy, to learn in new and creative ways what will it look like for us to love our neighbors and care for them with all the limitations of wisdom and the instructions and the best practices before us, what will we do? What are the new and creative ways we will learn to love justice, to show mercy? There's an opportunity for us to experience the invitation of Isaiah chapter 1. Learn to do good, seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the cause of orphans, fight for the rights of widows. Not everybody's going to be able to sit at home and watch a church service online. How will we love them and care for them? Not everybody will be able to piecemeal together a sense of community in these coming weeks through things like FaceTime or small group gatherings where they can be assured that no one is sick. What will it look like for us to care for those people, the oppressed, the orphan, the widows? What will it mean for us to learn to do good and to seek justice? To be a word-built church means we do what the scriptures tell us. And when life is confusing or hard, there's such incredible clarity there for us. So again, do not be afraid. Jesus is with you. He has provided for you, and he is leading you. Now, rooted and grounded in that reality, we are safe and we will be safe in the hands of Jesus. Go from that place of confidence and be a light to the world. We are a city on a hill. Learn to do good and seek justice. Let's be the church, perhaps in ways that we have never been before. The church has been that way for thousands of years. This is a new experience for us facing the threat of disease, but it's not a new experience for the church as a whole. We are not the first society to face unknown questions. This is our first time. But it's not the church's first time. God has led us safely before, and he will lead us safely again. We get to figure out what will it mean to be a word-built house in this time, in this place, following the invitation of God's word to meet the challenges before us. Well, what will that mean? I'm not sure. I don't know, honestly, right now. Life looks way different today than it did last Sunday. Who knows what the next week waits for us. But the word-built house is led by the Spirit of God, and we must receive his word and let him lead us. And this happens when we are rooted and grounded in God's love for us and his provision for us.
It's not when we are afraid. It's not when we are panicking. It's when we're rooted and grounded in love that we can hear his voice and respond. So wherever you are right now, here's one, we could never do this in a service, but we get to do this because there's a pause button on the feed. You can hit pause for a second, and I want you to go grab something to eat. Maybe you've got breakfast left over. Maybe you've got a pancake in front of you. I want you to get a glass of something to drink and a something of something to eat. It doesn't have to be anything fancy or significant. So maybe pause. And when you're back and ready, hit play. I want you to hold it in your hands and remember the reason you have to not be afraid. This is not pie in the sky wishful thinking. Uh, This is not distracting ourselves. This is how we can face reality, whatever it is. I want you to take that food in your hands and remember that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, he blessed it, and he broke it. And he said to his disciples, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. I want you to look at that food you have in front of you and and remember, this is the body of Christ given for you. This bread was one of the most common things that they would have had in their day. It would have been present at almost every meal. After the meal in the same way, he took a cup of wine, perhaps in your case, a glass of orange juice, and he said, this is my blood shed for you, which seals your relationship with God. Drink this in remembrance of me. Take what you have, eat it, and drink it. And remember, Jesus is with you. Don't be afraid. We are a house built on the word of God, and that word reminds us that Jesus died for us, he was raised for us, and now by faith he dwells within us. How will we be that kind of church in the days, the weeks to come. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.